Welcome to episode 346 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. April 2020 through December 2020 went by in a blur as I worked every day that ended in Y to find new revenue streams after my in-person event-focused services became moot. That hard work paid off, but it took me another six months into 2021 to take a breath and lift my foot off the gas even a little. I just wasn't really sure how else to be except in the fast lane. Planning ahead during that time was impossible. I could barely look three to six weeks out and taking time off just wasn't an option. With all this in mind, I'm proud to share that my family took two week-long vacations this year and we're planning a relaxing, all-inclusive trip next year to celebrate my 50th birthday. It was a hard three years and it's wonderful to be out and about again. I know we're not completely done with the risk of COVID, but I do feel a little less at risk if we end up testing positive. If you've been having a hard time taking time off, it doesn't have to be a week-long vacation. For me, it started with reclaiming my nights, then my weekends and holidays. If you haven't yet, remember to block off holidays in your calendar and thoughtfully decide whether to work on your business or take time off those days. Now, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Forbes named today's guest the premier expert on standing up for yourself at work. She trains some of the brightest minds on leadership development at places like the World Bank, Microsoft, Under Armour, Pfizer, and Nestle, helping emerging leaders enhance their presence and self-confidence. She's an internationally known leadership speaker and three-time author, TEDx speaker, and an award-winning journalist. Her advice has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Oprah.com, Today, the LA Times, and ABC and NBC Television. She's been featured in Harvard Business Review, Inc., The Today Show, and NPR. Today, she's a columnist for NBC News, Know Your Value. She's also the author of the brand new career guidebook, Quick Confidence, and has written other bestsellers, including Pushback and The Next Generation of Women Leaders. Please join me in welcoming Selena Resvani. Selena, welcome. Robbie, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So excited. And we figured out that you actually live really nearby, which is so fun for me when I get to you know, get to know people in my local area. So as you know, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Mm, That is a good one. And we need this topic right now. You know, I'd love to tell you 
my own leadership journey, you know, everything went according to some master plan. But if anything, it was the opposite. And so I think a big part of leadership is curiosity and experimentation, you know, a willingness to try things a different way, particularly when it's not working. Um, So I bring up the master plan because uh, early in my career, I found this total mismatch. I had studied social work. I loved the tenets of social work and the skills I was learning. The problem, Robbie, was that I could not leave it there. Um, I, no matter what you know, group I worked with, I, I could not make this career work. I was taking it home with me. I was feeling really consumed. I lost 10 pounds and I thought, oh, there's gotta be a way to apply these great diagnostic skills, you know, these problem-solving skills to maybe apply it in a way that's sustainable, you know, that I can manage. Um, And so I was looking for jobs under every rock, every corner of the earth. What can I do and apply these skills? And I thought, I wish I could apply this to the workplace, you know, maybe to help employees find their empowerment, their voice, um, get their needs met. Uh, And again, I'm looking every place in desperation one day, I turned to Craigslist. (laughs) And there, believe it or not, is my dream job, working at Great Place to Work Institute. This is a company that ranks the 100 best places to work in America for Fortune, but they also consult, they help companies, you know, trying to do a better job, trying to be better employers. And I somehow got that job. I absolutely loved it. That's awesome. And yeah. And I feel so grateful that that I found my home. And so, um, you know, I'm not sure I would have found my own leadership voice, mm-hmm. um, my kind of sweet spot, had I not been maybe willing to take a hard look and say, this is not working. I am pretty unhappy um, and I need to experiment. I need to try something else. So I think that's really an important part of, of leading. So I'd like that you, you touched on the idea that leadership is about curiosity, experimentation, trying new pathways forward, not staying stuck if you feel stuck, exploring what that means, finding out what else you could do, like kind of a, it's a very much a learning mindset a growth mindset. And I'm kind of curious where that comes from. So you just described a little bit about your shift from from the world of social work and into a great opportunity where you get to apply those same diagnostic skills and tools in a workplace setting. But I'm curious who Selena was as a kid on the playground. Like, where'd you grow up? Uh, what was what, what were you like? Were you like gathering people together? Were you watchful? Did your teachers and parents sort of see some potential in you and push you out in in front? Like, what were you like in those earliest uh, formative years? Yeah, well, I I think a big part of my identity is being the youngest. So I'm the youngest of four. And um, there's something about being the smallest, the weakest, (laughs) least skilled or experienced at things that makes you pretty scrappy, I think, and makes you want to... keep up with the gang. And uh, I really love my siblings, but like 
I wanted to be in the pack. And, and so it's funny, I was always the smallest kid physically, like the shortest and younger than my classmates. So in a way, I think that scrappiness was a theme of my life um, and, and maybe has been a good thing. But I started out like a ham. I was pretty hammy as a kid and outgoing. Maybe that's the youngest, you know, kid birth order thing. I don't know. Um, but I found, you know, I lost some of that confidence as I got, you know, approached maybe age 10 and up. And I felt very curious about people, uh, particularly women, uh, leaders or women kind of authorities who who were powerful and maybe even more curious about how those women were at ease with their power. Mm -hmm. I think there was an early seed planted in my head, you know, wow, look at their confidence, look at their authority and power. Where where does that come from? And it turns out later in my life, I, I interviewed many of those women and I studied some of, of their career paths. Who were some of the women that caught your eye early on? Well, there were a, a mix and I'd say some were in family businesses, mm -hmm. which in some ways I think can be harder to run. Uh, for example, Catherine Weymouth, the Washington Post to be the CEO of the Washington Post and have had your grandmother, you know, start that institution. Um, people have a lot of assumptions about you when it's in the family. So I think in many ways, those women who I interviewed had more to overcome. Mm -hmm. um, same with the CEO of Bigelow Tea, Cindy Bigelow. You know, another question there is like, how have you overcome some of your doubters? Um, so those are some quick examples. And Great. yeah, yeah Marie. I love this Chan idea. Oh, sorry. Who was the last person? Oh, no, I was just going to say Marie Chandoa, um, a CEO at Charles Schwab, uh, somebody I really admired, um, you know, Rosemary Turner, a president at UPS, so many people who agreed to meet with me, um, you know, for the sake of sharing this with others who could maybe accelerate their own leadership. I'm just trying to picture this because, of course, pre-10, you were, uh, it sounds like, you know, visible life of the party, like really kind of putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because of course, it sounds like if you didn't, people may totally not see you, ignore you, you had less visibility. So, so you you hammed it up a little bit. Um, but then you started to kind of get into that preteen age. And it sounds like you got a little more reserved, you got a little more curious about these women leaders. I'm curious, though, who introduced you to these women leaders I and mean, the people you just spoke of, are you know not household names um, like if you had said I don't know like Oprah you know what I mean? mm -hmm. I'd be like oh well everyone's heard of Oprah so was there someone in your family who was sort of interested in this topic and pointing you in that, that direction those earlier years? Um, no, I, I wouldn't say it came from within my family in terms of of that. I think it came from the fact that I struggled to some degree with my own feeling of belonging. I'm half Pakistani, so I'm the daughter of a Pakistani immigrant on one side. My mom is Caucasian and has Ukrainian roots. Um, so her parents came here um, from the Ukraine. So 
no one else had that combo growing up around me, uh, except for my siblings. And, you know, my difference, um, my sense that I wasn't a full card carrying member of either of my parents, you know, communities always felt very much at the forefront to me. And I think in a lot of ways, I brought that search for wanting to belong into the workplace as an adult. Um, I was working at jobs like the one I mentioned at Great Place to Work Institute and consulting uh, for other companies. And so often I was in the room with the leadership team, all of whom looked the complete opposite of me, male, six feet tall, usually white. Um, You know, and I really kind of diluted my essence got good at giving people the kind of diet sprite version of me. Diet sprite version of you. Wow. I mean, now now having heard that phrase, it's very vivid. (laughs) Uh, At 12 years old, did Celine, did you have a sense of where was going to happen next career wise? Were you destined to go to college? Was that like a given or was there a particular career path you were thinking about at 12 or so years old? Let's see, I think at 12 years old, I was um, honestly, if I'm being totally honest, I was like parroting a lot of what my older siblings said. You know, I'm not sure I was tuning in to like my own inner whispers and wants and wishes as much as I was listening to my siblings who would say, I remember my sister saying at that time, like, I wanna be an international lawyer or like a judge. And I'm like, that sounds great. Like me too, you know, um, and and I, I think given some of my wish for belonging, that was a theme, conforming, you know, in some cases copying, because it was a little bit even more convenient, I think, than digging deep and saying, how about you? You know, what makes you excited? What makes you tick? I ended up getting a master's in social work. And it wasn't that I went into college knowing I was going to do that. Um, I'm curious, when you got into college, what Mm -hmm. was the plan initially? And how did you find your way to social work? Yeah, so um, I started out, first of all, there was a strong expectation that I go to college. Mm -hmm. Um, For both of my parents, their educations that they got were really hard earned Both of them came from not a lot and education meant everything to them. So there was a big emphasis in our house on that. Um, And so I had big dreams, like a lot of kids to go to college. The only thing was we lost my dad very suddenly in my teenage years, very suddenly. And while this was already gonna be kind of a financial hardship, to pull off college for four kids. Um, now it really was like times got harder for sure after we lost my dad. Well, fast forward a few years, I found a college I really loved, NYU. And I applied and was like overjoyed when I got in, was so excited. Um, and they gave me some financial aid to help uh, with our situation. And I went, Robbie, that first year, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And if anyone, by the way, has ever had a single mom, they know like single moms are the masters of doing a lot with a little bit. 
And that's just what my mom did for me to make that first year of college happen. And so I loved it. I, I remember getting that package for year two and excitedly like opening it up from financial aid. And lo and behold, the aid dollars were much smaller. And uh, my mom kind of sat me down at the kitchen table and was like, honey, I can't swing it. I can't send you back. And I realized in that moment, if anything was going to maybe change, you know, the course of where things were headed, it had to start with me. You know, my mom hadn't been to a full-blown four-year college, um, let alone like argued with the financial aid office, you know. Um, and so I wrote them like a long appeal letter. And I, I was basically like, please, please, you know, keep me. Here are the ways I want to make it worth it to you. Here's how I want to contribute to school life, student life, the community. Here's all the jobs I'll do. <laughs> Cafeteria, tour guide, all of it. Um, and to my very happy shock, they changed that financial aid package, not just for wow. But for year three and year four, they gave me all those jobs too. <laughs> so, advocacy. Oh my gosh. Advocacy, Robbie. That's the word. And I have to tell you, I feel like that planted such a seed in me in terms of wanting to teach that to other people that like all of us can have supporters and loved ones and like mentors and sponsors cheering for us, but nobody's going to ask on our behalf, you know, like you have to be your own vocal advocate, your chief negotiator of your life. Mm -hmm. And boy, did that teach me that exact lesson. And so I enrolled, I really loved uh, psychology, which is what I gravitated to. And um, I had a roommate who was doing social work and it just seemed so much more hands-on um, she was telling me about her field work and practical experiences she was having. And I'm I'm that kind of person. I'd much rather like touch and feel it than study it from several feet away. And uh, that that got me into the social work program. It's so interesting. Your your story about the um, uh, going back to financial aid office and arguing your case and basically like writing an appeal letter to them. Um, and that self-advocacy at a young age, I mean, I know at the time you probably didn't feel as young as we now think of you being. Um, I just finished uh, listening to Marie Forleo's book, Everything is Figure Outable. And, you know, I'm just hearing that refrain in my head, everything's figure outable as you're talking about this, that you were like, well, my mom basically gave me what she gave me. And now I have to see whether there's anything else. And before you gave up entirely and just moved on and that, that says something about how you were raised and like your earliest experiences that you thought that was even a possibility. Um, and then to have success meant that you now have this really strong foundation to grow from that you're like, well, if it worked that one time, you know, then I'm sure there's a theme in, in your life. Um, I, I ended up getting an MSW and not getting licensed because I focused on macro social work. So mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in being a clinician. And I do feel like it, it infuses everything I do, because I'm really focused on community building, organization development, um, how groups, how people think in groups. So how did how did you sort of think about your social work career? Was was your was there a plan to really be more of that clinician role initially? 
You know, I think that what I was maybe attracted to, you know, sometimes we have these ideas about like what's appealing or where we can make an impact, uh, what's really exciting was so hardcore. And I'll give you an example. My field work was at the Manhattan DA's office working with violent crime victims. Like, ugh, I mean, truly awful, terrible things happening to people and, and needing, you know, of course, they, they need to process that with somebody and, and my hats off to the people who can do it. Because clearly, I, you know, I'm not made of that fabric. Um, but I think there was a mismatch between what seemed very exciting to me and what was actually sustainable um, and something I could carry out. So um, I think I would have been better suited with maybe an application to organization development and systems, you know, thinking about more of the macro, just like you um, have talked about the value you've gotten from that. Uh, I love organization development. I really click with the concepts and the ideas behind it. So I think that probably would have been a better fit for me. Um, I also remember thinking about even um, shorter term type uh, work, for example, with college students um, and just the ways in which that creates a support system for college students who I think really need it and often don't have yeah. supports. Um, so there was so much I learned from social work, but like you said, I, I find it's part of my everyday. I would not change my education for anything. I am so grateful for it. Um, and if anything, I think social work's really underestimated by people, um, really kind of marginalized, sadly, in a way, um, as, as less of a profession and skill base than it is. And I, I think it has the potential to change the world. Yeah, it's very multifaceted the way it could be applied. Did you stay employed while you were searching for the next thing once you started to realize how uncomfortable or, or unfulfilled you were in, in your social work role and you started perusing things like Craigslist? Or did you let go of that work and just dive into job, job searching? Yeah, so I went through a few jobs thinking maybe it's this place, mm. maybe it's this fit. Um, and I think ultimately I just realized, nope, <laughs> I am, I can't eat and I love to eat. I look forward to mealtime and planning and cooking. I'm one of those people. And uh, I stayed employed in that last social work job I had and looked on the, you know, nights, weekends, anytime I could. And this magical unicorn of a job showed up. Uh, what year did you shift from social work into working at the um, the organization around the great places to work? Uh, I want to say 2004. So right. almost, yeah, 19 yeah. years ago. Yeah, I'm just trying to place us like, because, like, you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I graduated in the late 90s. And, you know, the, the options then, you know, around what social work could be, yeah. I think has expanded a lot since then, um, than what we were offered. I think I was fortunate to have a school Yay, SUNY Stony Brook, <laughs> um, that gave me the opportunity to have this. The macro was was a sort of a smaller subset of the program, but it was one they were comfortable uh, promoting. Uh, 
after you get this role and you realize you can take these skills and apply it to the workplace, like how did you start developing your career at that point? Did, and at what point did you realize you wanted to start doing something other than just working in a day job where you started speaking and writing and like developing your own business? Yeah, so I'm at great place to work and what a wonderful place to cut your teeth. Really like a generous um, group. You're saying they're a great place to work. That's good. I'm I mean, I'd be, a, yeah. be awful if so that wasn't people, the case. <laughs> yeah, it really would be. And so many people would ask me that, still do, but uh, it really was a like a supportive place. And, you know, we were sitting on a mountain of best practices that the best companies in the world were doing. So, um, that knowledge is like undeniable. Um, and, and talk about experimentation. That was a place very much willing to experiment and try different things. Very employee centered. I felt so humbled in that job to interview employees at different companies, to do lead focus groups, to do survey analysis, um, and to read employees' experience. And I think it galvanized something in me because let's be real, so many employees don't have a good experience. Work is like a place of suffering and, and unhappiness and, and not always a place where they're like given dignity and respect, right? And that really came through to me, particularly with the companies who were struggling and maybe wanting to be a better workplace. Um, it's very hard to read in black and white <laughs> someone's verbatim experience and, and deny that. And uh, I think it made me realize like this is part of my mission on this earth is to raise up that employee voice, um, to be maybe a translator at times between those findings, as we called them, and helping break through with leadership, you know, and... Mm -hmm. Did you have any opportunities in that role to do speaking? Because, uh, it, I mean, it sounds like as a clinical social worker, there's not a lot of presenting yeah. um, in that role. So like, did you start to develop that skill a little bit in that role or did that come later? Yeah, just a little bit in that role. I actually had a mentor there named Jane Weiss and uh, I'm so grateful to her because she said to me one day, I was kind of the report writer of the findings. Um, as a newer employee. But as I got more tenured, she was like, why don't you present to leadership this time? And it was like, oh, so shocking to me to think that was humanly possible. But, you know, isn't that what really good mentors do? They see something often in you, you don't even see. Um, and boy, that meant the world to me and, and that chance and um, it felt really good, as terrifying as it was to be the leader of the conversation, to be standing up in front of this team. It felt really awesome too, to share something I cared about, but, but to kind of challenge myself in that way. And it wasn't until my next job after that, a, a DC-based firm I worked at called Management Concepts, that it was actually, Robbie, a part of my job description to find three public speaking opportunities of a year. Um, and, and it was also three articles a year to write. And I think that really nudged me in the direction of like thought leadership and, and sharing your own ideas. Yeah, I mean, one, kudos to the, to the mentor, right? For helping you expand your comfort zone, 
giving you that opportunity, seeing that that potential in you. And two, how cool to have a job description include basically, like you said, thought leadership, like nudges in that direction of speaking three times. I mean, because to speak three times means you have to have a little bit of a system around getting those three opportunities. Yeah. Like it's not just by chance you fell into one, you have to work at it a little bit. And same thing with writing articles, you have to be planful and that intentionality leads to more than three overtime opportunities a year. So you said yes to that job description. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, probably because you'd already had some experience in the front of the room and had, you know, they always say like, it's, it's the biggest fear, like everyone's biggest fear. But like, once you do it, you're like, okay, I'm still here. I can only get better at it. Mm -hmm. um, so you probably wouldn't have said yes to that DC uh, management company if you hadn't already done that part of the work. Yeah. And well, to be fair, I came in with one boss. She left and a new boss came in and implemented that that kind you of didn't rule. Know. <laughs> so I didn't know. So I can't really give myself credit and say, good job. So brave, <laughs> Selena. Like, nope, I I didn't necessarily think it was part of the program. And um I am so glad that uh I was kind of encouraged by that next boss to do it because while it might have helped the organization, you know, to have internal speakers out there on the conference circuit, what a investment it is in yourself, you know, to do that. I felt like they gave me this lifetime, this lifelong investment in myself, um, not, not just raising the profile of the firm. So early on, uh, did you seek out any support or community effort to help you get better at speaking? Like, um, you know, going to uh, Toastmasters, for instance, or, you know, doing free talks for chambers just to kind of get some reps in before you were on the main stage or, you know, even in a breakout session at a conference, or did you just dive in because you knew the content? I, I did a mix of on the job, um, you know, in practice speaking. And I think that helped meaning even leading internal meetings, you know, um, I remember going to a conference myself, getting some education and leading like a brown bag lunch where I could share what I learned with other people. So I think those little like mini opportunities just internal helped me get a little more comfortable with public speaking. I also joined a Toastmasters group in Bethesda, Maryland, and um, that was a help and just an encouragement that you can do this. Like. Mm -hmm. This is very much a skill that with experience and experimentation, you can improve at. And it was a really nice community. But I think there was no substitute for the high visibility moments. And I remember one study my firm did, um, th them saying, like, we'd like you to represent it at a conference in front of media. And that was just like, wow, put on your big girl pants in my case and like get ready for this and those were like the big learning moments and the confidence building moments yeah yeah i love that you described the brown bag lunch after attending a conference one i love the idea of an organization building that into the culture because too often individual i i help people for my business is mainly around helping people design 
virtual and in-person conferences. And I'm always talking to session owners or speakers about how to help bring that content back. Like, yeah. how do we help people do that? Because most of the time, they're the only one in the session and mm -hmm. they get so jazzed. But then when they go home, like life intervenes and right. nothing gets implemented. So the idea of giving people the opportunity for brown bag, but also the brown bag is another rep. It's another opportunity to have a stage. And yes. if you're a company, if you're listening and like you have an opportunity to do that, but it's not currently happening, suggest it because <laughs> like right. it, it adds shares the ideas. It gives you a chance to be in the front of the room using someone else's ideas to like share that. Yeah, but it, but it's great. a confidence booster, as you're saying. And but I do agree that comparing that to big stage media, <laughs> like like there are steps in between. It sounds like you were doing um, some training on your own, doing the Toastmasters, getting that confidence in there. Um, and at some point, it seemed like that became something you really liked, not just something drudgery that you like did. When did when did that mental shift happen when you realized like, oh, I know how to do this? Yeah, where like things click and and you're in that zone. Um, well, so while I was at Management Concepts, I was really loving what I was doing. I was, you know, um, really appreciating getting to help employees do 360 kind of assessments, help leaders develop. And I thought, I'm especially interested in women leaders. And wouldn't it be great at the same time if I could speak the same language as my clients? Because while I had my social work training and base, my clients were speaking about profit and loss and balance sheets and these pressures I did not understand, the vocabulary, you know, I really didn't understand. So I decided to get an MBA at night um, and I picked a program uh, at Johns Hopkins where I could direct some of my own research. And We've talked about some great mentors, but I had one female professor at Johns Hopkins in my whole two years. And uh, I remember bringing her a proposal. And I said, I'd really like to interview top C-level women leaders. The only issue is I don't know a single one and I have no connections to them, you know, but I'd still like to attempt this and write to them. And Lindsay Thompson, she said to me, Selena, I will approve your proposal, this research idea on one condition. You have to go after the giants, she said, like the people you think would never even take 10 minutes with you. Like if you do that, it's a yes. And I'm so grateful to her because I did go after so many of those women, like the ones I mentioned earlier, who I deeply admire, and more than 30 said yes. Wow. And those interviews really changed my life, my leadership. And I was like, you know what? I am not that unique. I think this could help other people. And so while in business school, I pitched that to a publisher and, and they said yes, and um, it became a book, my first book, The Next Generation of Women Leaders. And I quit my job about a year later when the book came out and shared some of that leadership advice specific to women around the world. And that is when public speaking really clicked. Um, and I think like for all of us, Robbie, when you are just talking about something that you find in infinitely layered and interesting, something you wouldn't mind reading about 
on your time off on a Saturday, um, magical things happen. I think your audience feels that and you feel it, you know, and, and that changed public speaking for me. I love the arc that you've been describing because it's it. I'm sure it makes so much sense in retrospect. But, you know, as you're living it, it's like you're just kind of figuring it out right next thing, the next thing. Yes. But it's building blocks. Each one allowed you to reach the greater heights to do the next thing. I love that this, you know, mentor professor said, yes, but shoot for the stars. And because you did and you had those kinds of interviews probably also helps your, um, you know, when you're submitting your book to be published, like you had such good data. Um, you had all this good information. You had contacts that you could reach even further for the mm -hmm. book. So all fantastic. What year did your uh, book come out, the first one? The first one came out in 2009. And like I said, that same time it came out, I went off on my own. And that's a it's a big moment to leave that yeah. corporate, you know, job, security, What salary. was the plan? Like, other than speaking or was speaking really the plan? And, and did you know other speakers at that point or any other entrepreneurs even who were helping you sort of think about how to have a business? Uh, I didn't know many, uh, certainly didn't know many author speakers. Um, and so I felt very much in new territory and, and kind of in the dark, uh, to be honest. I remember going to some events like networking events um, seeing other speakers and some very kindly speakers giving me advice afterwards, like, for example, what to charge or that's way too low of a rate to charge. You should be charging more. And I'm so appreciative of them just taking that time with me. So I was doing a little bit of outreach that I could with those I was exposed to, you know, from these events. Um, but the plan was really to support myself speaking and doing some consulting to take that consulting kind of uh, base I had learned and apply it to gender inclusion at work to make workplaces more welcoming. So I didn't just want to speak. I also wanted to do some diagnostics to help leadership teams understand, look, this is what would make, for example, women want to stay in your organization. This was, this is what might help you retain them. Um, and that is such a colorful, interesting experience. One of the questions I often ask in the focus groups is, you know, what's an analogy for what it's like to advance here? You know, and, and you'd be amazed the range of answers. Um, but, you know, again, that was part of my job to share with leadership. That, that maybe people didn't always feel as comfortable telling the leaders directly. Um, so it felt like a humbling, very important role. That's amazing. I, I love that you were able to take what you were learning uh, and apply it. I mean, this is true praxis, right? Like you're really taking all the ideas from the ivory tower. You got to build up your own muscle and, and experience within the context of some great organizations. And then you decide to just do this yourself, um, hang, hang your own shingle, as they might say. Yeah. Um, and I'm, but I'm still kind of curious about the, I don't know, the confidence behind that decision. Um, clearly, you had a good idea. You, you had, uh, you know, the professor say it was a good idea. Then you had a publisher say it was a good idea. You felt it in your bones that it was a good idea. 
but you also, it doesn't sound like you were surrounded by entrepreneurs and that yeah. it was a given. Like my, my mentor, Dory Clark had said, you'll know it's time to leave your day job when it gets in the way of your business. Mm. Right. So like I had that sort of idea and eventually, yeah, okay, I'm going to leave the day job. That was the career and focus now on the full-time role as an entrepreneur. Um, and there was still, I mean, I still felt like I was starting over and <laughs> there was so much yeah. to do. Where did you figure out the business side of things? Did you join particular organizations, communities, networking events, networking communities? Um, like how did you start surrounding yourself with the people that you wanted to level up to their comfort and their, like their, their access and their experience in this world? I think the single best way for me to level up was to have, I'd say, some peer author speakers who I could talk to completely candidly mm -hmm. about things. Um, sometimes in a consultation mode, hey, I just got a really strange out there, different request than I've ever gotten from a client. Can I run it by you? Um, and I was always better for that conversation. Like there was always a sense of empowerment. And, you know, I don't think you really just have to go along with that plan. If you don't agree with it, here's how I might push back or here's how might I might negotiate it. And so those peer relationships, developing that informal peer network, um, but saying really openly to people, even when nurturing like a new relationship, listen, I'm an open book. If there's anything I can share with you that's helped me, my proposal template, like anything, I'm very willing to share it. I'm willing to talk about money and fees and all of that. Uh, if it's ever helpful to you, like don't be shy about reaching out or using me as a sounding board. And I have found having those people who are not exactly right in my domain, but um, maybe 10 degrees, even outside. I have a great friend who does this for me. She's in innovation. Another one who focuses exclusively, exclusively on communication. Somebody else who focuses on the nonprofit world. Um, and yet we can all help each other in really immediate uh, time-saving ways. Yeah. Not to mention the support. I think there's just a lot of understanding and support as well. How do you find these author speakers initially? So well, some were like lucky happenstance. Um, I wrote my second book with a publisher called Wiley and they introduced me to another author who's become an incredibly close friend. So maybe um, uh, 11 years ago, my second book came out and her book, Simone, her name is Simone Ahuja, was coming out the same time as mine. And Wiley said, you may want to co-promote each other's books and help help out. Um, she's become a wonderful friend and a source of so much knowledge. So I think some lucky breaks like that. Other speakers I met at conferences in the green room, and we really hit it off and chose to stay in touch. And then here's a newer one. I am not afraid at all to fangirl somebody and DM them and say, this happened recently. I just found you and your work. I think you're wonderful. And I happen to notice you're local to me. Um, like if you ever want to get together, it'd be great to meet and talk. 
And um, that just happened with two speakers in my area who, um, you know, initiating in that way led to the three of us meeting. And it was like the best time. That's so, amazing. Yeah, kind of not overthinking it. You know, mm -hmm. if you have that inner urge, like, oh, I really like that person. I think we'd have something awesome um, in terms of a connection, like not letting yourself go into overthinking mode of, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe I'll wait. I don't know. Maybe they'll say no. Yeah. Maybe it'll come off weird, you know? So you've built quite the network over the last 20 years, almost 20 years of doing this. I'm curious, you know, you always have that sort of inner circle of people you know you're going to stay in touch with. But for the second and third layer or second, third tier out, how do you think about nurturing those, I'll say, weaker connections? Uh, any habits, philosophies, or practices that help you sustain and nurture those connections? Like people you might see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago, but you haven't since, but you like each other. That that should yeah. be. Yeah. <laughs> and those relationships matter. Like I know sometimes we can think of them as like, oh, is that a little more transactional? We're not confidants and friends who talk all the time. But those relationships really matter. And I know a lot of the research says they are a richer source than even our tight inner circle. Um, so I do take a pretty proactive approach with those, like for every inquiry I get inbound, uh, every person I meet, I send a LinkedIn invite. I really try hard to do that and keep us connected, even if in that looser uh, way. Um, I also post five days a week on LinkedIn um, because I, there's a lot of things I really care about, especially in the work world right now and helping people be those confident self-advocates. So I post about things that I think can add value to my community. It doesn't matter to me if I talked to them last week or seven years ago, like I still want to be adding value. Um, and also just sharing some of what I'm up to. You know, I share what's going on with my books. I share like just recently a, a talk I gave um, and why it was meaningful to me with pictures of that talk. So I found that steady drumbeat of consistent posting um, with an eye towards adding value has really mm -hmm. helped nurture those relationships. And I think someone's more likely to DM you on LinkedIn or comment on your post and say, um, you know, hey, I thought of you for something that we're working on or, you know, like an event, as you know all about, Robbie. Um, you know, and I thought of you because, you know, you've stayed present, right? You've, you've stayed um, in people's feeds. And I think there's something to that, um, that consistency. Yeah, I could really appreciate that. I mean, it is a process to get that kind of content out, but being visible, you know, it's not just who you know and what you know, it's who knows what you know, and will they remember you? And so the, and will they remember you part is what you're really speaking to here is that you're putting your ideas out. Uh, then they also know what you're about. So it's good, helps make referrals a little easier. Um, really appreciate all of this. We're about to get to my favorite wrap-up question, but first we're going to hear a word from our sponsor. Okay, here's my favorite wrap-up question. Uh, a year from now, we're having a conversation, and because you live local, I hope this is not a whole year we wait <laughs> to talk together mm -hmm. again. Uh, but I'm asking you about all the things that are happening in your life and what are we celebrating from the last year. 
what are we going to be toasting? What are you looking forward to the most in the year ahead? Hmm. I think, you know, trusting that inner um, wisdom that's often the source of your best ideas is so important. And I'd like to toast with you a year from now um, saying, I'm so glad I listened, you know, to that gut instinct that such and such was a fruitful idea and worth pursuing. Um, a, a quick example of that, I talked myself out about five times of starting a LinkedIn newsletter during the pandemic about confidence. I don't think so. I think it's too fluffy. What if it doesn't make business sense? Um, but I really wanted to do it, Robbie. I really had this urge, like, I need this. Other people need a confidence boost too. And I did it and it went viral. It was the first thing I've ever done, you know, that that went viral. And it's today a book. It's 100,000 people strong in terms of subscribers. But like most important, it's a community. You know, it's a forum where we exchange and share what's helped us with confidence. And none of that would have been possible by shushing, you know, those inner um, urges and those little wise um, whispers. So I really wish that for everyone, especially if it's something lower risk that you can try, you can attempt, like do it do it because you are your best advisor and counselor when it comes to good ideas. I 100% agree. And I can't wait to help you celebrate all that good success. How can people find you and follow your work? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, you can go to my website, Selena Resvani, and check all the information out there and resources. I also create content daily around leadership um, on every platform. And so my handle is Selena Resvani on all of those. And my newest book, Quick Confidence, is uh, out in the world, uh, newly out, and you can find it everywhere books are sold. Fantastic. We'll put all the links and resources in the show notes at onishmoose.com. We've got all your social profiles, links to all your books. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Robbie, for lifting so many of us up. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Selena. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 346. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archive episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share their untold stories about leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. 
That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.